Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 29th, 2024. It is currently 9.26 a.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, who knew listening to a heavy metal album would turn into, well, a mini-series on Satan and how Satan gets into your head. Who knew that it could turn into a miniseries, but that is exactly what happened. If you remember correctly, well, there, there was an album by the band Saxon. Now, the name of that album is Hell, Fire, and Damnation. The title track is Hell, Fire, and Damnation. And the song, the lyrics kind of tell of this battle between God and Satan and how we're kind of caught in between and we're never going to be free from this war, from this eternal war between Satan and God. And, and well, not that the song is, you know, obviously theologically correct, but it brought up this idea about Satan and what can Satan do and what can he not do? So we kind of started asking these questions. I kind of gave people, you know, to write down all the things they think Satan can do and then look up the actual scriptures and, and just, and just we, we kind of kept, you know, we kind of just threw out a lot of ideas. It was, it was nothing like, I didn't know where this was going. And then, well, because we're doing the Sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge, some of the listeners grabbed the Sermons 2.0 app and, well, they started doing searches for things like Satan's power. The power of Satan along, along those kinds of lines, that kind of that line of reasoning and, and thinking and kind of pursuing that kind of topic, trying to figure out what can Satan actually do. And well, it led one of our listeners to a sermon entitled How Satan Gets Into Your Head. And well, they sent that to me. We've started a review of it. And wow. <laughs> Who knew we would end up here? And now, now this is part three. It, it's been it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. I mean, we started in a sense with heavy metal theology, and now we're into some really important theological questions and issues about Satan, about God, about about salvation. About I mean, we have we have just asked so many questions and challenged so many things. If you missed part two, probably the big takeaway from part two is this. I'm going to read the scripture. All right. I'm going to read the scripture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's John chapter 10, verse 10. Now, in the message that we are reviewing, again, that it is entitled How Satan Gets Into Your Head, it's on the Sermons 2.0 app. You should look it up, listen to it, download it, because remember what we're doing is it's not so much about criticizing the sermon. It's not even about disagreeing with it. It's about saying, here is their hypotheses, and then I'm offering a completely different perspective, because obviously... I don't completely agree, but it's not about me just criticizing. It's about saying, here, I want you to actually go listen to their perspective. I want you to know their perspective. But then here is this different perspective. But they, in the sermon that we are reviewing, they, they're they over in, I think, 2 Corinthians, but Satan is not mentioned there. So then they went to John 10, 
they grabbed John 10, 10, told us that's about Satan, and then kind of grabbed Satan and then pulled him back over to the passage in 2 Corinthians. Well, I already was questioning the entire hermeneutical approach there, but I really was challenging the hermeneutical approach because, ladies and gentlemen, John 10, 10, if you read it in its context, if you read what Jesus is actually doing, if you read the entire, if you read chapter 9 going into chapter 10 and all of chapter 10 and all the things that Jesus is doing in chapter 10, John 10, 10 is not about Satan. And if you think it's about Satan, I think you are, I think you're misrepresenting the entire passage. I think you're inserting something there. And the reason you're inserting it is you've been told over and over and over that John 10, 10 is about Satan. It's not about Satan. It's about the religious leaders. I think you can see that if you'll look at John 9 and John 10 and put it all together. Now, we're going to do more work on that. Right now, we need to finish this very lengthy review that we're, we're currently working on. But I challenged everyone in part two, go read John chapter 9, go read John chapter 10. You could do a chapter summary method. You could do lots of different observational Bible study methods so that you can just look at what's there. And I think if you look at what's there, you're not going to see Satan. Pastors have put Satan there. Other people have inserted him there. I don't think that's what the text is saying. I don't think John 9 or 10 has anything to do with Satan. Now, you, you can take a look and maybe you disagree. But look, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And you can put forth your best hermeneutical approach to it. But I think that, so already that was like this, again, is, is a complete misrepresentation. But our main problem that we have stumbled upon is not only in this sermon, how Satan gets into your head, but this is a common teaching in the evangelical world that basically Satan has this ability to do this and to do this and to do this and to do this and to do this. And, do this. and sometimes Christians never stop to go, well, wait a minute, if we're claiming he can do this and do this and do this, let's take it to its logical conclusion. And if we took it to its logical conclusion, sometimes we would end up well, in a, in a place that's just completely ridiculous. For example, if Satan can literally, according to this sermon, Satan can get so into the head of a believer that he can render you powerless, that he can literally enslave you to fulfill his purpose. Well, if Satan can get so into your head, just think about this for just a few seconds. Well, I don't know. Can you think about it? Because if Satan is in your head, you don't, you don't know what you can think about because you would have no control of your thoughts. And even if you, even if you had some control over your thoughts, how do you know they're your thoughts? Because Satan is in your head. See, once Satan can hack the computer, then what can you trust coming out of the computer? There, it's infected. It's been hacked. It's under the control of someone else. If Satan can get into your head, then I don't know what you can trust. In fact, I, I put forth a, a crazy hypothesis just to try to prove this point. If Satan can get into your head, then is it possible that Satan has so infiltrated and hacked the brains of Christians that his entire strategy is this. He has convinced us to believe in this thing called Christianity, even though Christianity is actually false. But he has so hijacked our brain to believe all of these false things so that we believe we are saved, to, to convince us that we are fighting him when in reality we're on his side. 
So in a, ra- in a roundabout way, we think we're fighting him, but he's sitting there controlling the whole thing. And we're like, we're the righteous ones. We're the right ones. And he's like, yeah, keep believing that, believing that because you think you're okay. But in reality, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be in hell. Now, people say, well, that's a ridiculous concept. Well, not it's not ridiculous if Satan can get into your head and control your thoughts. How can you then trust any thought? How can you even trust any interpretation you have of Scripture? And it was really weird because in the same sermon that talks about Satan can get into your head, that can render you powerless, that can do all of these things, that, that can enslave you so that you fulfill his purpose. At the same time, it's like, but you are filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's leading you and guiding you and empowering you so that you'll be more than a conqueror. Well, wait a minute. If, if the Holy Spirit's doing all of this stuff, then how does Satan ever get into my head? Because you would think the Holy Spirit would repel him and push him back. So can he or can't he is the spirit. And then, and then it talked about what the spirit supposedly can do. And we get right back to a different problem. If the Holy Spirit's empowering you, then how come you can't get to holiness and perfection and sinlessness? Well, then there's a limit to the power. Oh, the whole thing just becomes, it becomes so confusing and, and it almost becomes maddening. Like you, you really start thinking it's almost like at times, you say one thing, then you say another thing. You don't even bother if the two things make any sense. It's just, it, it, you think you start losing your mind sometimes listening to Christians throw out these crazy ideas and never stop to think of their ultimate implications. You've got to take things to their logical conclusion. So can Satan get into your head? And if you say he can get into your head, what do you actually mean by that? So we, we challenged all of that in part two, but we need to move on and we need to try to finish this review. We may, we may come back in this series and do some additional things. Like one of the things we may do is do some serious work on John chapter 10, verse 10, since that is so, I believe, I believe that's one of the most misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. So we may come back and do some work on that in this series, and we may listen to some other things, some other random sermons um, about what Satan supposedly can do. So I, I hope you're benefiting from this. Uh, but we let's 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 just try to finish this. Let's try to wrap this up. I don't know how much longer we have left in this sermon, but we may go a little long because I would like to at least finish the review portion. Then we could. You know, we could do questions and answers. We could, we could work on John 10. We could uh, listen. We could review some additional sermons because these ideas are so prevalent within the Christian world. Satan can do this and Satan did this and Satan's doing this and this happened because it was Satan and Satan, 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 Satan. And you're like, man, the way Christians act, sometimes you would think Satan is omnipresent. You would think he's omniscient and you are pretty close thinking he's omnipotent. And they'll say, no, 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 we don't believe that. Okay, well, then why are you claiming he can do all of these things? So lots of questions. I don't want to go back and, I, well, part of me wants to go back and review everything we did in part one and part two, because there's always new people who will tune in, who will jump to conclusions. Please go back and listen to part one and part two. That's all I ask. Please go back and listen to part one and part two. And if you want, go all the way back and look for the message, heavy metal theology, because that's what sparked all of this. But let's get back to the sermon. Again, when I review sermons, it's I have not listened to them beforehand. So my, my reactions, my analysis, my critique, it's in real time 
as if we're sitting down listening to this together for the first time. Because then I don't, when I do that, I don't have an agenda, right? It's not like it's rehearsed and like it's all produced. No, that's like a show. This is about, I'm listening to something, you're listening to something, and we're trying to figure it out in real time. Here we go. In looking for the most effective place or beachhead for Satan to assault us in this battle, Satan has noticed that there is a point of glaring vulnerability in each of our lives. And if you okay, so Satan has figured out there's a there's there's a place of great vulnerability. We are vulnerable. Now, again, let me put forth this concept. Wait a minute. If I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit help with this vulnerability or does the Holy Spirit do nothing? Now, in, in this very same sermon, he's like the Holy Spirit's guiding, leading, directing, and it's going to make you more than a conqueror. Now, he didn't really articulate it, but now, but now, but, but, but there's, there's a glaring, there, we may have the Holy Spirit, and we have a sovereign God, but we're vulnerable. Now, why are we vulnerable? If we're vulnerable, why does God not fix that vulnerability? Or why does God not keep Satan from that vulnerability? And if God allows Satan to exploit that vulnerability, why would God do that? Knowing that it, by exploiting that vulnerability, we could sin. Well, then you have to ask the hard questions about God's sovereignty and is somehow my sin, my failure, a part of God's ultimate plan. And if my sin is ultimately a part of God's plan, then shouldn't we look at other people's sin and failure as being possibly a part of God's plan? Doesn't mean we excuse it, but means maybe then we have to then see how we can take this sin and failure and utilize it for whatever God's purpose is. Like, I think I think it raises some serious questions, but let, let's see where he's going to take this. You're not aware of this. You're already defeated before you even get in the battle. Now let's look at the battlefield. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, We are taking every thought captive. Here Paul is saying that the battlefield takes place in our mind and our thought life. That is so simple we often overlook it. The battlefield is the battle of your mind. Okay. The battlefield is our mind. All right. Now I'm going to, again, I'm putting, uh, I'm putting up my own counter hypotheses. He may, now this may be all he's trying to say, but if you listen to everything that's come before this, it makes it very, like he makes it that Satan somehow can get into your head and then do all of these things. Here's the way I perceive this to be. Look, the only thing that I can think can make any sense is, yes, there is this spiritual fallen angel, Satan, roaming about. Okay, no problem. Satan utilizes the world system. He utilizes the world. And in that world system, ideas and things that are contrary to the wisdom and thinking of God is prevalent everywhere in society. It bombards us. It's all around us. And Satan utilizes that to present these ideologies, these philosophies, these concepts that are contrary to how a Christian should think. 
And what we have to do is as these ideas are being presented to us and we're being exposed to these ideas, we have to take these ideas captive and we have to compare it to the word of God. So I think that there's these that because even even with Eve, Satan did not get into her head in some supernatural way. If, if you're implying that and planting a thought, no, he presented these thinkings and these thoughts to her. He didn't get like, there was some way he was planting the thought in the brain, hijacking the brain, controlling the brain. The thought was being presented to her. Now she had the ability to take what was being said there and contrast it with what God had said to her. And then there was a battle in her mind. But it wasn't like the mind was being hijacked or controlled or Satan somehow putting the thought directly in your brain. Because I've heard pastors make that kind of claim like, hey, you're in a prayer meeting and all of a sudden a horrible thought comes to your mind. Where did that come from? Satan put it there. No, that any, now listen, now we got to make sure we add this to this discussion. Our raw, our, our wrong desires, a lot of our, all, a lot, a lot of that, that corruption doesn't come from the outside to the inside. It comes from the inside. The corruption is already inside of us. That is our depravity. So on one hand, we have something that fights against our thinking, which is our internal depravity. It's inside of us. It's there. Now we need the external word of God, which is outside of us. And we are to read it, not allowing what's inside of us to corrupt our interpretation of it, but then take it and then have that help us see what's inside of us so that we can acknowledge it, we can see that it's there, and we can try to fight against it. At the same time, we have the external word of God that's outside of us, so that when these these thoughts that are being pre- presented to us in whatever shape or form, we can take the word of God and then, in a sense, take that thought captive and compare it to the word of God. So I have no problem saying the battlefield is our minds, but we have, we have an internal struggle with our, with our mind. That is our internal corruption, which is our depravity, right? Which does not magically go away when you're saved. Because if you believe that, well, then you should be able to be sinless because you have no internal depravity. Okay. All right. But so we have that. Then we have the external threat, which if you can say is Satan, but I, I just say when you say Satan, you can say Satan and the world system. It, because it all thinks and, and has philosophies and ideas that are contrary to the Bible. Now that does not mean Satan is somehow you know, getting inside my head, planting thoughts or anything like that. Now, if that's all that he means, then we're in complete agreement. And some of the ways he's described it, it's like he gets, Satan gets inside the mind. Well, once he can get inside the mind, plant thoughts there. Well, then there's no way for you then to trust any thought you ever have ever again. In fact, we already have to be somewhat cautious with many of our thoughts because we have a heart that is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And we have an internal corruption that already impacts our thinking. So we already should be somewhat weary and questioning of our own thinking anyway. As a man, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is death. Because we, our perception and our thinking is not always correct because we have depravity, which impacts that thinking. 
That's why we need something outside of ourselves. That's why we we don't we don't we don't look for some internal feeling or some internal thought, and we try to either claim that that's God or that's Satan. No, my internal thinking is already suspect, so I need something external, which is the Word of God. Now. My thinking, because it's already corrupt, can then take the word of God, and then that wrong thinking then can try to twist scripture to fit the internal corrupted desires, which makes it all very complicated, even without adding Satan or somehow God is speaking inside of me or Satan is putting a thought inside of me, only adding to the confusion and making it almost impossible. We already have enough problems. So maybe that's the direction he's going to take this. But at times he has spoken of it as almost like Satan is getting inside your head. And well, look, if Satan can get inside your head and plant thoughts there and somehow do something with your thinking, well, then once the computer is hacked, there's the game is up. Why here? Satan knows human nature. Satan knows that our thoughts control our feelings. And he knows that our feelings control our choices. What we... Our thoughts control our feelings. Now, this is where things can get a little complicated. Is it that our thinking controls our feelings, or is it our feelings sometimes control our thinking? Isn't that sometimes the issue? That it's not my thinking that's controlling my feelings. It's my feelings controlling my thinking, right? Isn't that always the struggle? Now, I don't know why he would say our thinking always controls our feelings because that's not true. Sometimes my thinking is like, hey, I know that what I'm feeling is not rational, but I feel it. And even though I may know that it's not rational, I still may act upon my feelings and not my thinking, can you be in a situation at times where you're like, look, I know this is the wrong way to think, I, but my, but because your feelings. I don't believe thinking controls feelings. I believe sometimes feelings control thinking. I think that's a battle. I think we want our thinking to control our feelings. I mean, have you ever been feeling depressed or discouraged? And you're like, I, I'm going to think positive thoughts and I'm not going to think this way anymore. And all of a sudden, just magically, your depression and your discouragement just goes magically away because you just decided to think correctly. I, I Come on. It's much more complicated than that. Come on. It's much more complicated than that. Sometimes you can be feeling something and you can ask counsel for, for 15 people and they can all give you the exact same counsel and tell you this is the way you should think. But you know and I know that in many cases you don't listen to any of that because your feelings. Now, sometimes we want our thoughts to definitely control our feelings. We do. I, I, I completely agree with that, but I don't think that that's the way it works, that thinking controls feelings. That, that may be in the perfect world, but in the real world, we act upon feelings all the time. Come on. When was the last time you got really upset, maybe at your husband or your wife or your kids, and you said something? Your feelings came out? Now, was it, now why did that happen? I mean, did, why didn't your thinking control your feelings? 
We're emotional human beings. And there's a battle. And sometimes our emotions are wrong. Sometimes our thinking is wrong. But I don't think that you can say thinking always controls emotions. Now, you can tell me what you think. Now, maybe he's going to uh, explain this. But I, I think, and he says thinking controls feelings. And then that's where choices come. No, I no feelings and thinking are in a conflict. And sometimes our choices are more based off feelings than they are thinking. Sometimes our choices are based off thinking versus feelings. We men say, I'm not a creature of feelings. My feelings are under control. It's the women who are controlled by their feelings and their emotions. Let me tell you guys, like it or not, you and I are controlled by our feelings and our emotions just like the fairer sex. Okay, so he's, ad- he's admitting that we're controlled by our feelings. Okay, so he's admitting that. All right, good. So we're on the same page. I think our feelings do control our thinking over and over and over and over. Now, maybe we, we want it to be the other way, but I think that happens over and over. All right, so, so I think we're on the same page here. I think we're on the same page. All right, let's see where this is going. If you don't think your feelings control the choices you make more than what you may be willing to realize or to acknowledge, you are going to fall to the strategies of the enemy. It is part of being human. Our thoughts control our feelings and our feelings control our choices. But now he's gone back to our thoughts control our feelings and our feelings control our choices. Okay, let me state it again. I'm going to be repetitive. We want our thoughts to control our feelings. Because if if we have right thoughts and they control our feelings, then we'll have right choices. The only problem is our thoughts don't always control our feelings. Right? And sometimes our choices are based off feelings and not thinking. And sometimes, listen, our thinking sometimes is wrong, and then our feelings are wrong, and then our choices are wrong. Sometimes the whole thing is wrong. You know why the whole thing is wrong? Because we have a sinful nature. The sinful nature impacts the thinking and the feelings and the choices. All right? He keeps turning this to about Satan. Remember, before Satan even shows up, before Satan is anywhere near you, Satan could take a vacation and retire tomorrow. You're going to be struggling with these same issues because you have internal corruption. You have a sinful nature, which impacts your thinking, which impacts your feelings, which impacts your choices. And we know that that sinful nature is there because if the sinful nature wasn't there, then you should be able to be, ladies and gentlemen, sinless. But you can never be sinless. You can never be holy as God is holy. You can never be obedient to all of God's law. That's why we have to be saved by an imputed righteousness. Not an infused, but imputed. Well, you're declared to be that which you are not. You're not righteous because you have a sinful nature. And because you can never be fully holy and righteous and sinless, meaning then you're still controlled by something. And that sinful nature impacts thinking, feelings, and choices. So on one hand, it made it sound like he was saying our feelings sometimes control our thinking. I think he was trying to say sometimes our feelings, I think what he was saying, thinking controls feelings and feelings control choices. And he was trying to make it sound like, I guess he was trying to say that, hey, don't say that your choices are not impacted by your feelings. It's All right, let's just see where he takes it. They control our actions. 
They control our behavior. How many times have you heard somebody say something like this? Well, this is how I feel. I feel this is the right decision. You've heard people say that. You probably said it yourself. Or I've heard people say this. This is what will make me happy. Now, is happy logic or is happy a feeling? It's a feeling. But this will make me happy and I want to be happy. So I'm going to do it. So many of the, of the choices we make, they are informed by our thought life, which is oftentimes faulty, but the thoughts control our emotions, and our emotions control our feelings. If you look down right now at your feet and you saw a snake coiled up and ready to strike, your thought life would inform your emotions. Would you agree with that? You would probably break up church right now all by yourself. What you're thinking about would impact your feelings. I got no problem saying my thinking can impact my feelings, but he's making it as a dogmatic assertion. I would argue that my feelings would impact my thinking. There are times that people will see it could be a bug and then they will yell or scream and it may be interrupt an entire church service. Well, that's their feelings impacting their thinking because they're thinking, they're like, that's a little bug. It can't hurt you. It can't do anything to you. You can just step on it. Sometimes our feelings give us an irrational fear and we act in a way that's not in accordance with logic. Like, why are you yelling? Why are you getting nervous about that? That thing can't hurt you. Yeah, but it's gross and I don't like it. That, so I could reverse that same illustration and say, he's, he's got a snake coil up that your brain is impacting your feelings. And I will argue that people, there are people that could be something far less harmless, uh, far, far more harmless than a, than a snake. You know, in other words, something that can't harm you, but you don't like the way it looks or just it creeps you out. And then you, you, you yell or you jump or, or, or whatever the case may be. That's your feelings impacting your thinking. He's making the dogmatic assertion that it always works this way. Thinking controls feelings, and I'm arguing that's not the case. Feeling sometimes controls thinking. It's not that, it's not black and white. We want our thinking to control our feelings, but over and over and over our feelings control our thinking. Okay? Now this, this is kind of taking an interesting turn. Because at this point, we, we, we had Satan getting into our head. Now we've kind of forgotten about Satan. And now he, he's trying to argue this is the way it works. Thinking controls feelings. And then feelings control choices or actions. But I'm making an argument that already this is not that simple. It, it, you have to know this. It's going to be interesting to see if there's agreement or disagreement with this. You can either agree with the perspective that's being put forth in the sermon we're reviewing, or you can offer your own perspective, or maybe you will agree with my perspective. I think that we want thinking to control feelings, but feelings control thinking over and 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 over again. And you would begin behaving according to your feelings. But let's say that you looked down and saw that snake and you punched your husband and you wanted him to do something about it, throw his body between you and the poisonous serpent or something. And he looks down and he first his first reaction is what yours was, but then he notices the snake's not really moving. He looks a little closer. He reaches down 
picks up that snake and he shows you it's just a rubber serpent. Some child had put it there playing a prank. Now, your thoughts begin to affect your emotions as well. What happens to your emotions? They begin changing. Do they go down immediately? I don't think so. They're going to very slowly descend, but they will begin to change. Why? Because your thoughts are changing. Do you see what I'm saying? You've got a doctor's appointment. I've had those appointments. The doctor's run some tests. You're worried, you're anxious about the worst possible scenario. If you focus on the worst possible scenario, that's where your thoughts are dwelling. What's going to happen to your emotions? You may be a nervous wreck by the time you meet with the doctor next He keeps... That can be your emotions then impacting your thinking. So I, so I, I don't... Ah, oh, this is getting a little confusing. This is getting a, I, we need an expert to come in. I need an expert. I need someone who truly understands the makeup of human beings to be able to tell me, is it emotion impacting thinking or is it thinking impacting emotion? He believes that this just is very one way. Thinking controls emotions. Thinking controls emotions. And I'm, I, I, no, I, no. That's your emotions controlling your thinking, overwhelming your thinking, maybe even getting you to think irrationally. That happens all the time. How many times do we think it or say and think things that are irrational? Because that's the emotion overriding the thinking. If I remember, I don't remember exactly how it it went down. And I I have at least some background in this, not because I'm an expert, but just because I was a patient. If those remember, for those who don't know in my life, when I was young, my mother died and I won't go through all the horrible things that happened, but I ended up uh, what eight weeks in a psychi- uh, psychiatric hospital, and in that hospital we had to have. I had to. I took classes. I had to take classes on things dealing with mental health. Right, trying to put me back together because I was a broken mess as a teenager in that psychiatric hospital. It was. It was a long eight weeks of my life. But we had a class where they they had a an image of a train. Right. And and like the train is kind of like your life. And what should be the engine of your life? Should it be your emotions or should it be facts? Well, or or your thinking. I can't remember exactly how they. And guess what? Sometimes they said in many cases, your emotions are driving the train. And you can't let your emotions drive the train. So even they at least acknowledged in that setting where I'm with learning that, hey, you got to sometimes then find truth. You got to find the facts. You got to find reality. You got to think that because your emotions will hijack the train. And if the emotions are driving the train, it's going to go off the tracks and it's going to be a fiery crash. That's emotions. I, I, I'm very aware of this. When your emotions feel like things are helpless and hopeless and there's no point in going on and all you can see in front of you is darkness. There is no light. You're in a pit. You're in a, the abyss and there's no way to crawl out. That's when suicidal thoughts come to your mind. Those suicidal thoughts are being driven by the emotion. Or you're thinking, if your thinking was controlling the emotion, you hope you're thinking then, that if you're thinking rationally, would be able to say, man, this is a horrible situation, but it doesn't mean it's the end. And so people then try to, imp- try to give you thoughts that are different than your emotions. It's, it's a battle. Which is going to drive the train? 
what's going to what's going to be the engine of the train? Is it going to be your emotions or is it going to be true? I think they said truth and not thinking. But the point is, is that your your thinking has to be governed by truth, by facts, by by logic, by reality. But your emotions don't care about facts or logic or our truth. Your feelings don't care about any of those things. Isn't that the battle? Thursday morning. But if on the other hand you begin focusing on God, on His sovereignty, on His love, on His faithfulness, you just choose not to focus on those negative things, those fearful things, those anxiety-causing things, but you're going to focus on God, what's going to happen to your emotions? Yeah, there's going to be a little bit of up and down, but they're going to be a lot more consistent. Wouldn't you agree? Your thought life impacts your feelings, which impact your choices. Now, I completely agree. My thinking can impact my emotions. I got no problem with at least acknowledging that that is true. But it's just as true that my emotions can impact my thinking. It's just as true that that's, that's the struggle. That's the battle. I don't know why he's so very like myop, myoptic and like he only has like one, one way of looking at this. It's not, it's not that simple. This is much more layered and nuanced and, 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 and it's just interesting. I don't know where Satan has gone in all of this. It's almost like we've forgotten about Satan for a while and we're having this other, this other lengthy discussion. I had no idea that this is where this was going. So in the, and part two is, was all about John 10, 10, where he was trying to find Satan so he could bring it back to the second Corinthians passage. Well, we, that wasn't Satan. And so, so that whole, that already fell apart. Now we still, now we've almost forgotten about Satan. And now we're like, how does this actually work? So if we're going to separate these out, then we have thinking, we have emotion, or we, we can say we have thinking, we have feelings, so if we want to do it that way, or we, we, we could put rationality in emotion, however we would like to word it. But you can, you can draw this out if you would like on, on a piece of paper. We'll put thinking, feelings, actions. His argument is that thinking controls the feelings and feelings control the actions. And it seems to be very one way, very dogmatic, very certain. I will argue that thinking, emotions, and actions, and that sometimes actions are determined by emotion, sometimes it's determined by thinking. Sometimes emotion impacts thinking, sometimes thinking impacts emotions. I don't believe it's one way. I don't believe it's one way. Look, you can be a... a, Let me give you an example. Solomon the wisest man, right? Supposedly the wisest man who ever lived, other than obviously, you know, God incarnate, but as a human being, pure human, pure human, not not God and man, okay? We'll make sure we don't get heretical. But we all talk about Solomon's great wisdom, great wisdom, right? He had knowledge and he knew how to use that knowledge correctly. That man of great wisdom, the man that obviously would have great thoughts, Ended up with what? 700 wives, 300 concubines, and became a serial adulterer, a serial polygamist, and an idolater because his heart was turned away. Why? Because his feelings, his emotions, his 
affection. His thinking was not controlling everything. His heart, his emotions was controlling everything. You would think if anyone's thinking could control their emotions, it would be Solomon since he's the wisest person, which is supposedly wisdom is the correct use of knowledge. He had, so therefore he had the right knowledge and he had the right use of said knowledge. Yet he ended up a serial adulterer, a serial polygamist, and an idolater. Why? Because his heart, his heart overrode his wisdom. right? His great affection, his great emotion for these women whom he loved, he cleaved to. This is what Satan has learned by observing humanity. The problem is you and I do not understand his strategy. Thoughts are the beginning point of all of our attitudes, our choices, and our behavior. Understand that. Think about that just a moment. Think about it. Your thoughts are where everything else begins. Now this does raise a question. Does our thinking... Is our thoughts where everything originates? Is it our thoughts that originates emotions? Or is there a distinction between thinking and emotion? Now we're get, we're getting into some really like deep things, and I don't know if I don't know I, I I would have to get into some really professional you know professional literature here maybe some peer reviewed studies but then i think we're going to get into human psychology now does the bible put the thinking as the source of emotion or does the bible draw some kind of distinction between emotion and thinking now i don't know i don't know what human psychology would tell us i don't know how they how that field of study would offer any answers but i would just i just think that over and over and over we see the danger of allowing your emotion to override your thinking. If thinking is the is where everything originates, then 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 really this you know what this really kind of turns into? The power of positive thinking. Was that Norman Vincent Pill? I, I believe that's I think I think that was his name. The power of positive thinking. Just think right and then everything will be right. You just got to think right. Now, I think there's been plenty of people who've struggled with great emotional upheaval and they always have someone say, you just need to think right. Just think this. Just remember this. Just read the scripture. And like, dun, 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 all your emotions are supposed to be better now because everything originates with your thoughts. Now, your thoughts have profound impact on other things. There's no question. But sometimes you get caught up in this weird, like, you don't know if it's your thinking impacting your emotion or your emotion impacting your thinking, but you find yourself in an emotional and thinking storm and you're being tossed to and fro. Oh, I, I almost want us to just stop right there because I think it's something we need to figure out, Right. What, 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 what do you think the truth is? Do you separate thinking and emotion? Or is all emotion the product of your thinking? 
or is sometimes you're thinking the product of your emotion. We would have to separate. Do we not separate the two? Now, if we separate the two, then that raises the question, where do emotions arise from? Now that we could break it down to different parts of the brain, right? Is there a part of the brain that controls the like cognitive ability, the thinking, rationality, logic, and there's a part of the brain that's more connected to emotion and feeling so that it all comes from the brain, but both things are produced in the brain. Now, that may make a little bit more sense. Now we're getting to, to the parts of the brain. Well, then that means your brain can be in conflict with itself. Now, that really gets confusing. That one part of your brain is producing emotion that's contradicting the cognitive thinking side of your brain. Well, that means if Satan can get into your brain, you're finished because he would have access then to the emotions and to the thinking. Now, is that, is that, is that a more accurate way to understand it? I, I'm, just, I'm just presenting this for now. I, this is something we're going to have to explore in greater detail. Let's see where he's going to take all of this. Your thoughts are where our attitudes begin, our behavior begins, and our choices begin. If you are what you think and you're putting junk into your mind, is that going to impact the way you feel and the choices you make? Is it, students? Is it? Sure it is. But your thoughts are where it begins. Now, there can be medical situations where hormones and mental illness may do a lot of crazy things. But I'm talking about normal people, at least six of you in this room right now. Normal people. Okay, I don't, I don't like... Uh, okay, this is a whole personal thing. People who are struggling with mental health don't say they're not normal. Okay, I know he doesn't mean it that way, but I don't like that. You're a normal person with struggles, right? Is a person not normal if they have cancer? Is a person not normal because they're paralyzed? You're not normal because you're struggling with mental health issues, all right? All right, I, I did do a little research here before we go back to this. According to artificial intelligence, according to AI, I had that's the fir first thing I could look up. The human brain plays a significant role in generating thoughts and emotions, but it's not the sole source of those mental phenomena. While thoughts are closely associated with the brain's neural activity and cognitive processes, emotions involve a more complex interplay of neurological psychological, and physiological factors. Emotions are often triggered by a combination of cognitive appraisal, past experiences, social interactions, and biological responses. So the brain is somehow play a role in generating both, but emotions have much are impacted by so many other factors. So therefore, there's a separation to some level. So that would mean that thinking doesn't always control emotions because emotions are impacted by numerous other factors. So you can't say 
say thinking controls emotion. You can say thinking can influence emotion. But not only that, it's the brain producing both concepts. But I think it's different parts of the brain. I would have to really get into the study of the human brain. So I could be, I could be incorrect. Those who have much more, um, higher degrees in, in, in the medical world, they can obviously correct me in probably 5.2 seconds. So we're definitely, we'll have to come back. So I, because I, I mean, I'm reacting to this in real time, but if the human brain, I will argue if one part of the brain is producing thinking and the other part of the brain somehow has something to do with the emotions, those are two separate parts of the brain. And I will argue that the thinking part and the emotional part may not always be in agreement. And then you take the emotional part, whatever the brain, however the brain produces said emotion, then those emotions are impacted by all of these other aspects, the physiological and the, um, they say, well, let me go through this, uh, a, a neurological, uh, psychological and physiological factors. Emotions are triggered by a combination of cognitive appraisal, past experiences, social interaction, and biological responses. In addition to the brain, Research suggests that other factors, such as the heart and even environmental influences, can also impact our thoughts and emotions. So there's other things. Uh, there's, uh, there's other things that can impact it. Therefore, while the brain is crucial in processing and interpreting information that leads to thoughts and emotions, it's not the exclusive source of our mental and emotional experience. So at least from this perspective, it's not the brain that's the sole source. He's saying that it is. Now, the reason this is important is he's putting forth dogmatic assertions. And these dogmatic assertions can have profound impact on people struggling with these issues. Thoughts is where it begins. That's where the battlefield is. Now, I want to put you at ease. You have very little control over the thoughts that show up on the screen of your mind. You're riding down the road. You're listening to uh, KLTY Christian music. You see a billboard. And it's advertising, We Buy Ugly Homes. And immediately you start thinking about ugly homes. Now, you have no control over that. All I'm simply saying is you don't have control over the thoughts that come through your mind. What you do have control over is the thoughts that dwell there. It's a big difference. Do you have control who shows up on your doorstep and rings the doorbell? Typically, I can't control who shows up on the doorstep, but can I control who comes in the front door into my home? Absolutely. See, that's the same way it is with your mind. You cannot control who shows up at the doorstep of your mind. Some very unpleasant thoughts will show up on the doorstep of your mind and ring the doorbell over and over and over and over. Okay, and where did these wrong thoughts come from? Where did these thoughts show up from? They can come from an external, external source. I will argue over and over and over that they many of these wrong thoughts that show up are a product of the internal depravity that is inside of you. That's where your wrong desires, your wrong feelings originate from because you are a sinner by nature and the nature is not eradicated in salvation. It stays with you until glorification. All right, let's continue. 
No, seriously, that is something called spiritual oppression. And it's a reality. We're going to talk about that next week as we talk about the strongholds of Satan in our lives. Oppression is when the thoughts keep ringing the doorbell. You keep running them off, they come back, keep ringing the doorbell. Over and over and over and over again. That is oppression. That's one of Satan's tactics. Okay, now he's, now he's, now, now we're back to Satan. That Satan is, that's satanic oppression because the thoughts show up over and over and over and over and over and over. Maybe the thoughts show up over and over and over, not because of satanic oppression, but because of internal depravity. Satan does not have to show up to have the, now, now see, now you have, is Satan putting the thoughts in your brain over and over and over and over? So now you have Satan doing something inside your brain. No, the thoughts show up over and over and over because I have internal depravity. Now you could argue, I may be exposing my stuff, my, my brain to external uh, influence that's promoting those thoughts over and over and over. Okay, we could discuss that. I don't know where Satan just showed back up. Now he's got Satan back up. Satan just showed back up. Now Satan is there oppressing, oppressing, oppressing because he's thought, thinking, thinking. He, he's, he keeps putting, he keeps sending the thoughts to the, to the door over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And first of all, Satan can't be doing this to everyone because he's not omnipresent. So then you would have to say demons spend all of their time going, okay, okay. All right. When was the last time we sent that thought to the door? All right. All right. It's been five minutes. Send it again. Okay. It's been five minutes. Send it again. It's been five minutes. Send it again. So all we got to do is find a way to get rid of that demon so that he'll stop sending that thought. I will tell you, get rid of all the demons, get rid of Satan. Lock them all up in hell. Put yourself in a monastery and those thoughts are still going to come up because the call is coming from inside the house. It's your depravity. But you cannot control the unpleasant, ugly, impure, selfish, all the ugly things about human nature. You cannot control those thoughts ringing the doorbell and standing on the doorstep of your mind. So that doesn't mean you're an evil person because a quadruple X-rated thought shows up on the doorstep of your mind. Okay, what do you mean it doesn't mean you're an evil person? It means you're a sinner. Like, I, is this like some kind of semi, full-blown Pelagian, semi-Pelagian view? Or is this some view that the, the old nature's been completely eradicated? Hey, it doesn't mean, it means you're a sinner! You have an evil heart, which is the source of evil thoughts. He's trying to make those thoughts keep showing up because of Satan. Satan is right right there. Here's another thought. Here's an X-rated thought. Here's a horrible X-rated thought. Here's a horrible X-rated thought. I, I look, man, that that makes me feel better. It's not coming from inside the house. It's Satan. Hey, hey, hey! Look, I have these really bad thoughts. Hey, everyone, back off. It's Satan. Satan. Now, then the issue is, if Satan can put the X-rated thought, at least present it to my brain, then why is God allowing Satan to present evil thoughts to the brains of his children? Well, then this gets back to a bigger theological question. So, let's... I know we're already at 54 minutes. Let's see, let's see if we can try to, where, where, where is this train going? I want to see where this train is headed. All right, here we go. In fact, I personally do not believe that thought can come out of the heart of a born-again child of God. You may argue with me on that and we'll deal with it sometime, but I don't believe it can come out of the heart of a born-again child of God. Why?
wait a minute. Oh, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, wait. So now evil thoughts cannot come from the heart of someone who's born again? Ladies and gentlemen, this sounds like the eradication of the old nature is what this sounds like. And if the old nature is completely eradicated, well, then perfection is probable. It's possible. It should be somewhat expected. Hey, you no evil thought is coming from your heart. It's all external. It's all external. It's just Satan. So, so you don't have, so now here's the question. Can an external thought, an external wicked thought have any impact on you if you have no depravity on the inside? Now, again, I've got to be very careful how I go about this because I don't want to, you know, just, well, I'm going to be somewhat blunt. So, you know, if you, if you have children around, go ahead and hit pause, but let me just try to make this very clear. I am a man. I am not homosexual in any way, shape, or form. So if someone presents the thought or an image to me of two men kissing or involved in any other romantic, physical, sexual interaction, there's nothing that's going to appeal to me. There's nothing inside of me that's going to be like, oh, that's, oh, I'm having bad thoughts. Why? Because there's nothing in me that has that issue. So if I have no, if, if I don't have a wicked heart that can produce evil thoughts, then evil thoughts has nothing inside. There's nothing inside of me that those evil thoughts would, would then be attractive to. The reason external things can spark internal conflict or internal desire or lust is because I have depravity already there. It's already there. It's just, you can just give me the right thing to spark it. Now, the, the inside already produces that wrong thinking, but the external thinking then can feed that internal desire. You can show me all the alcohol ads in the world. You can, I could be at a party. There could be 500 people trying to put peer pressure on me to think. I'm not going to drink. That has nothing to do with religion. That has nothing to do with Christianity. I just believe alcohol is a great evil. If I was an atheist, I would not drink because I've seen the utter total devastation and annihilation of human life from the, because alcohol impairs people's ability to think rationally. And I don't want to take something in my brain that will impact my ability to think rationally. So I don't want to drink. I can drink 5,000 other things and get along with my life. Life just great. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to take anything in. And I've been afraid of alcohol even before I became a Christian, even as a teenager. I was afraid and scared to death of alcohol, probably because I saw the devastating impact. I've talked about it before. My one of my best friends when I was young, his father was a raging alcoholic. And one Saturday, his father was starting to drink, and that was things were gonna get ugly. So he decided to go grab all the alcohol and pour it down the toilet. Well, we're in the bathroom pouring out all of the alcohol. All of a sudden, his father realizes what's happening, loses his mind. He comes, we've got the door locked. He basically, he basically takes, I don't know, I, I, I don't know what object he was using, but he was trying to smash open the bathroom door to get to us. And we had to crawl out of the bathroom window because he was coming in to do physical harm because we're pouring out his alcohol. That's alcoholism. Well, nothing to do with it. 
So guess what? You can offer me 900 drinks. Nothing, none, no, not even good. Not even interested. Not even interested. Now, I may look at the drink and go, oh, that looks good. Can I get that without alcohol? I talk about before, if I go on a cruise, I have lots of drinks, but I get them without alcohol. I'm like, oh, that drink looks good. What's in it? Okay. Can I get that without alcohol? Can I get this without? And I love, I, I enjoy the drink because there's nothing internal there. So if there is no, if he's saying that, that, that these think the thoughts, these evil thoughts cannot arise from the heart of a believer, then he is making the claim that then there's no sinful nature left in the believer. Well, there, if there's no sinful nature left in the believer, then the external thought can ring on the doorbell, but there's not going to be anyone to answer it. The reason the evil thought can show up on the door on the doorstep, one, could be from an external external source. I believe it can be also be arising from our internal nature. But guess what? If it's if the internal uh, sinful nature is not there, it can knock on the door and there's not going to be anyone to answer. Because the Bible says you're a new creation in Christ. You have his nature. Okay, for the 19,000th time. Yes, the Bible says we that anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. If that is true, then he is right. We literally have no sinful nature. Everything is new. Then why do you sin? Why? 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 Why is it that you cannot get to sinlessness? Why is it, why is it that you cannot get to sinless perfection? Because obviously there's something of the old still remaining. If you are a new creature, the old is gone, then the old is completely gone. So then where is sin coming from? He's going to have to offer some explanation of where the sin is coming from, unless he's going to argue that this is all just external and that we literally have nothing in us in any way, shape, or form, that sin could do anything to. Well, at that point, I don't know then, then you have to believe sinless perfection is possible. You'd have to believe it's probable. If you're going to quote that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, the old is gone, and behold, all things have become new, then the old has to be completely gone. All of it. There's none of it left. Basically, you're saying we're in a glorified state. Well, I know we're not in a glorified state. Not only that, because I know this for a couple of reasons. One, I'll just look for the most obvious reason. Because I still, my body gets sick, deteriorates, breaks down, and I'm going to die physically. Well, that's not the glorified state. A glorified state is a new body. Well, because my physical body shows the reality that I'm still very much the old is present. Guess what? The fact that I cannot get to sinlessness and I continue to sin demonstrates that, guess what? I'm still not in a glorified state. I am a new creature in Christ positionally. Positionally, the old is gone. Everything is new because his righteousness has been imputed and credited to my account. Practically, the old is very much present. Physically, that's true. Spiritually, that's true. Now, I'm going to tell you where that thought does come from in just a moment. I don't think a born-again child of God can have a suicidal thought from their own heart. But I believe it can show up on the doorstep of a believer's mind.
Oh, man. Whoo. So a, a, now this get, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little upset now. If you tell a, a, a believer that you cannot, a suicidal thought cannot originate from inside of you, it can only come from outside of you, then what happens if a, if a born-again Christian commits suicide? Well, this follows a very common belief that many in the evangelical world has, which I think is absolutely evil. Well, that person wasn't really saved because a saved person can never commit suicide. Oh, so if a saved person can never commit suicide, then I guess a saved person could never, I don't know, lust. A saved person could never have thoughts of wanting to harm. So, no. Then at that point, just say that we are sinless. A saved person can commit any sin, including suicide. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. See, this turned it. I thought this was going to be about Satan getting into my head. This is about a theology that is basically saying the eradication completely of the old nature. This is basically saying that at least internally, we're, we're, we're basically, there's no reason for any sin. Everything's on the outside of the house. We just got to not open the door. And ring the doorbell. And if the believer does not understand where that thought comes from, they're succumbing to the satanic strategy. They will embrace that thought as their own. And the battle is going from bad to worse to devastation and defeat. Okay, first of all, once again, this misrepresents where emotions arise from. The reason you end up possibly having suicidal thoughts is not just because of a thought. It's because of the emotions and the emotions are complex things. It, it, it's a mixture of psych psychology, physiology, biology, past experience. There, there's, there's, a, there's a multitude of issues. This is such an oversimplification and almost... Oh, this is so not right, right. And so many, it's not fair to do this to people. Things are much more complex. Well, you know, here's what happened. You have a suicidal thought because Satan, not, I guess Satan, Satan put it there. So I get, you know, once again, this is all Satan, a, a demon knocked on your door and you open the door. You idiot. You shouldn't have opened the door. If you open the door, if you would have just kept the door closed, you wouldn't have a suicidal thought. It's not that simple. There's a million things going on. When you begin to have a, reach a point where you don't want to live any longer. Weren't there some people in the Bible who didn't want to live any longer? Weren't there some people in the Bible who said, Lord, I wish I was never born. I wish I was dead. Oh, I, I think there were, I think there were, I mean, I don't know. You, you look it up and see if I, if I'm right or if I'm wrong. That, that's a complex thing. You've got to understand, you cannot control the thoughts that come to your mind or flash across the screen, but you can determine which thoughts you're going to dwell on. That is the power of God in your life, Romans chapter 6. Okay, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so, alright, so, so make sure we understand how this works. Alright, so, according to his hypothesis, is I have the power of God inside of me. 
And because I have the power of God inside of me, then I have the power to, that, that power inside of me means no, there's nothing internally. So there's not, nothing inside of me is producing wrong thoughts because I've got the power of God inside of me. And I have the power of God inside of me that's so strong that I then can determine if I open the door or don't open the door. I may not be able to control what shows up at the door, but now I have the power of God so that I never have to open the door. Well, if I have the power of God so I never have to open the door, then why do we continue to sin? According to him, no evil thought can arise from within. So therefore, the power of God, then I have the ability to say, sorry, not opening the door. Sorry, not opening the door. Well, if I never open the door and if thoughts controls feelings and feelings control actions, then I, if I have the power of God to never open the door, then my thoughts should always be right. Therefore, my feelings should always be right. Therefore, my actions should always be right. Therefore, I should be sinless. So whether he wanted to or not, he's now giving a logical argument that I have the power of God to not open that door. Therefore, and he's already established that in his hypotheses that thinking controls feelings, feelings control actions. Well, then if my, then therefore, if I can control the thinking because I have the power of God, then my thinking should be right. My feelings should be right. My actions should be right. Therefore, Christians should be perfect. Christian families should be perfect. Christian everything should be perfect. Churches should be perfect. Oh, wait, they're not. I wonder why. Oh, because I guess we keep opening the door. But why do we keep opening the door? We have the power of God not to open the door. So why is it that I'm, I guess I'm more powerful than the power of God because I can override the power of God to not open the door? I, why, why isn't the power of God powerful enough to convince me not to open the door? Let me put it this way. There's a Jewish understanding of the importance of the mind. An 18th century rabbi said, man's mind is the holy of holies and to admit evil thoughts is like setting up an idol in the temple of God. Every time you allow an impure evil thought into your mind and you're dwelling on it, it's like setting up an idol. Oh man, okay. I am not the holy of holies. I am not the holy of holies. I am a sinner. An evil thought getting inside my head is not putting an idol in the holy of holies. It's putting an idol inside an already corrupted and depraved human being. I, it's not like, oh, there's a thought. I open the door. Oh no, I've desecrated the holy of holies. I, it's like all the, the corruption inside. It's like, come on in. We have plenty of room for more. That's a, that, that, that's a Pelagian understanding. No, 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 no. Everything inside of me. There's a sinful nature. It's already corrupt. If I open the door for an evil thought, guess what? It's probably already late to the party because that evil thought is probably already originated inside of me because of my evil nature. An unholy thing in the Holy of Holies. Because let's face it, God dwells in your mind as well as in your spirit. Now, well, if God dwells in my mind, then how can evil thought get into my mind? So you're saying God dwells there, but I'm the one who opens and closes the door? 
So and I'm even more perplexed. God dwells in my mind. Well, if God dwells in my mind, shouldn't God be able to keep the evil thoughts out? He's God. God's like, okay, I dwell here, but hey, you, you control the door. Oh, what did you do? You just brought an evil thought into the Holy of Holies. How dare you? Well, wait, 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 wait. if God's dwelling there, could, would he not then push out the evil thought? All right, we're going to have to stop because we're at 71 minutes. We're at 71 minutes. We're at 71 minutes. Um, wow, I thought I thought we were still at 50-something minutes. Uh, I wanted to finish it. I wanted to finish it. I don't know how much longer we have. Uh, we I don't know if we'll do. Well, we may we'll do. Maybe we'll finish up the review. I don't know. We'll have to see how much time is left. If there's not much time left, then maybe we won't finish the review. We'll move on to something else in this mini series. In the meantime, I want you to go look up that sermon: How Satan Gets Into Your Head. Um, and he he made it sound like the next week that we're going to continue, but this is not labeled part one. So I'm assuming the next week it was something else. Um, this sermon has been listened to well over 30, like 32, 33, 34,000 times. So obviously it's very influential. It's obviously extremely popular and it's going to be much more popular than my take. I can understand that because my take is going to be considered controversial or radical, but I, I don't think it is. I think we're trying to be logical, rational, biblical, and we're asking very tough questions because this this way, this whole thing here is just convoluted and confusing to me. About the second I think, oh, we're in a great, and then I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. But go listen to it. How Satan gets into your head, go listen to it. Please listen to it. Listen to it without my my analysis and my critique and my review. You go listen to it. Okay, and then you may agree with that hypothesis. That's fine. That's okay. You don't need to argue with me. That's fine. But if Satan is. I, I. I. I don't. I don't know now. I don't know exactly how to completely articulate his hypotheses, other than Satan is right there. And I. I guess in one way, I, I don't know. Somehow God's there, but then he he doesn't control it. But we can, and Satan can get in. And I. Yeah, you you map it out. In the meantime. I'll stop. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I'm assuming the feedback should be pretty good on this one. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day and God bless.